0: All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would go deep in our hearts and that we would uh, be changed by it, that you would be uh, blessed now as we're turning our attention to it and we're worshiping you by the honor we give it. We pray that you would just be exalted and that you would reveal yourself to us. Uh, so have your way, and it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So tonight... We find ourselves in the books of Jeremiah and Lamentations, and so we're marching through. We are, uh, you know, if you hold your Bible up, we're a pretty good chunk of the way through. Um, and so we've, we've marched through a lot of territory. At this point, you know, in, in terms of how the Bible's broken down, we're in what's called the major prophets. So we had the histories, and then we had the poetry, uh, and now we're in the major prophets, which is Isaiah. Jeremiah and lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then when the minor prophets, uh, which are just shorter, they're not inferior, um, But Jeremiah is the longest of the major prophets by word count. He's not the longest by chapter, but he's the longest by word count. I read through the book of Jeremiah this week, and I'd say that's a pretty accurate assessment. Um, so Jeremiah is a real interesting book, and you know we just finished going through it on Sunday mornings, so Theoretically, you guys shouldn't need to be here at all tonight, because you've all been paying such rigid attention uh, for the last nine months, but um, but Jeremiah it really is just a, an incredible book, and it's an incredible, uh, I think, in, in its application for us, because Jeremiah really is a commentary on a man being faithful in the midst of a nation that is in decline, and so in that sense, it's, you know, it's the word of God. It's always had application. It's always been relevant to every generation uh, of, you know, of the church. But for us right now, it does carry a certain specific weight because we are living in a nation that's walking away from the Lord. We're living in a nation that's denying even some of those basic elements of reality that God has, has put on this earth. Um, and so the example of Jeremiah, I think, is, is very encouraging. So Jeremiah... Um, and just, you know, as the book opens up, it says the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priest who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So Jeremiah starts his ministry in the thirteenth year of King Josiah the last good king that the nation of Judah ever had. He's, his ministry carries on through this book all the way up until the 11th year of Zedekiah. If you, if you track that out, that's about 40 years of ministry. Four decades of Jeremiah delivering the word of the Lord with, uh, with no written account of anybody paying attention to anything that he ever said. And so... Um, in a sense, Jeremiah can be a very discouraging book because you're watching a man serve the Lord and really nothing's happening. He's, he's just, he's pouring himself out for the Lord and it seems like there's no results. But on the flip side, it's a very encouraging book because we're going to get to watch the Lord sustain someone through these times of intense trial, these times of intense hardship, these times of national persecution and national moral failure and all these things. Jeremiah is still a faithful example to us. And so, um, you know, I think a great place to start is just to look at Jeremiah's call to ministry. And we did this last week with Isaiah. Um, Just, you know, it's such a pivotal point to understand how did God call this guy out. And so chapter one, verse five, well, verse four. uh, Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nation. So the Lord says, before you even were formed. Before you even looked like a human being inside your mother's womb, I knew you. And, you know, our world wants to yeah, push about, you know, where is viability and how do we determine when it's a fetus or it's a baby or is it some sort of in-between thing. And, and in the eyes of the Lord, when Jeremiah, when Jeremiah was conceived, Jeremiah was known by God. And so we, you know, whenever we see This in the scriptures, we just have to pause and acknowledge, because of the culture we live in, that the Lord takes life very seriously. The Lord lives as the Lord treats the word through the word. The Lord reveals to us that He sees life as beginning at conception, and so if we're going to hold to a biblical worldview, we have to hold to that, and that needs to impact our lives. That needs to impact the decisions we make, and, and the. The people we vote for. It needs to impact all kinds of things about our life because the Lord takes life very seriously. But he tells Jeremiah, before you formed, before you looked like a human, when you were a sperm and an egg together, I knew you. And I consecrated you and I've appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. And Jeremiah said, verse 6, Alas, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak because I'm a youth, but the Lord said to me, Do not say I'm a youth because everywhere I send you you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Jeremiah says, God, I'm way too young. I'm not experienced. I don't have, I don't have the chops to be a prophet. And God says, I don't care if you have the chops or not, because everywhere I send you, you're going to go. I am, you're drafted, pal. Congratulations. You're in the army. And then verse nine, then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words, in your mouth. So the Lord, you know, Jeremiah has an inadequacy. He says, God, I can't talk. God says, perfect. I'll do the talking. You just do the obeying and we'll go from there, right? Um, And when we get to next week, the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel, at least for a season of his life, couldn't talk unless it was the Lord speaking through him. And so, you know, whether or not you think you're qualified to deliver the word of God or to speak, you know, here's what, here's what, Is real. Here's the truth. Here's what Scripture says. Here's what God says. Your qualifications. Well, it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter what your education level is. It really, none of it matters because if the Lord is calling you, then He's going to be the one who puts His words in your mouth and and He will give you the wisdom that you need, the words that you need. And He is going to do a work through you if you're just willing, like Jeremiah, to say, okay, fine whatever. It's your, it's your call. And so, Jeremiah has that call to ministry, and he's, you know, the Lord sets him apart and says, your job is to deliver my word to the people. And so, it is, in a sense, a specific call for Jeremiah's life, but really, it's a universal call. We are all called to deliver the word of God to the people of this earth, right? We have that responsibility. And so, uh, And then just at the end of chapter 1, I I think it's a great passage, chapter 1, verse 18, the Lord speaking says, Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city and as a pillar of iron and as walls of bronze against the whole land. To the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests, and to the people of the land, they will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. The Lord says this is not going to be a results-based ministry. This is not going to be based on any kind of number of converts or whatever. This is going to be, here's, here's how it's going to work, Jeremiah. I'm going to make you so rigid that when they come against you with everything they've got, it won't completely destroy you. Which is, you know, I mean, I guess it's encouraging. It depends on how you want to look at it. Um, I mean, you know, it'd be fun to be like a fortified city in a pillar of iron, but that's so that when every person in the nation is trying to kill him, he doesn't die. So, Jeremiah gets called to ministry, and he's not given any delusions. Uh, the Lord does not sugarcoat it for him. The Lord does not give him this idea of, you know, I'm calling you to have your best life now, or I'm calling you to, you know, claim these things in faith, or I'm calling you to whatever. The Lord says, dude, I'm calling you to deliver the word of God. And it's not going to be easy, and it's probably not even necessarily going to be fun, but I'm going to be with you. And so that overrides everything else, right? The Lord is not often interested in our happiness, the Lord is interested in our holiness. He's interested in us having the joy of the Lord, but whether or not we feel good and feel like life is fun and and cute is really uh, irrelevant to the call of God upon our lives. And so as we're looking through, before we start kind of jumping through different passages, um, you know, we see that call right up front. And then throughout the book of Jeremiah, throughout the book of Lamentations, we're going to see a man's life And Jeremiah's life is all about faithfulness before God. Jeremiah's life is all about just one day after another for 40 years. You get up, you deliver the word of God, nobody listens. You get up, you deliver the word of God, nobody listens. Jeremiah's life is completely uh, not about results. And the same is very much true in our lives. Uh, You know, like in the parable of the soils, when it says, Soil went out to sow, and, and he sowed seed on the ground, the seed is the word of God, and, and the soils each will bear fruit according to the condition of the soil, he never says the sower is responsible for the soil. The sower is responsible to sow the word, and the soil is responsible for how it responds, and, and that's, very, that's still true in our lives. Jesus gives us that idea that we sow the word of God, we put out the word of God, and results don't matter. What matters is faithfulness to so the word of God, faithfulness to deliver the word of God to this earth. And so that's really, as, as we're sort of, we're going to be jumping through Jeremiah now uh, and just kind of hitting some of the passages and the highlights, but, but we've got to remember that in context. Jeremiah is a book on faithfulness. It's not a book on really anything else. It's a book on endurance for the kingdom of God. So with that though, it's, it's the story, we said it's a faithful man who's living in a nation that's in decline. And so with that we're going to get to see God's response, not only to Jeremiah, but also to the nation that he's in. And so we get to see all these warnings, all these promises, and all these judgments from God. And, um, and they're, they're scattered throughout the book, and I think they're all important, because it's not... Even when the Lord judges, he's still giving promises of hope. Even when the Lord gives promises of hope, he's still giving warnings about the need for obedience. Even when he's giving warnings, he's still, at different times, judging people for their sin. And so they're all here in the book, and so we're going to just kind of, we're going to move through them. I'll just give you a heads up. If you want to flip along as we jump to them, you can. Um, the book of Jeremiah is not written in chronological order, and so I'm not going to be going through these in chronological order, um, so on my notes, I have chapter 7, chapter 21, chapter 17, chapter 12, and then chapter 23, for starters. So uh, you're welcome to flip along if you want, but you don't have to. Um, so chapter 7, verse, starting in verse 8, Jeremiah is delivering a message. He says, Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered, that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I have seen it, declares the Lord. The Lord says, guys, you're playing religion, just like kids play house. You go to town, and you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, offer sacrifices to Baal, you walk after other gods, and then you come into the temple and say, "Ah, we're delivered, right? We're, you know... God's grace is so wonderful, right? I just love God's grace. Now, excuse me while I go out and commit adultery. Jeremiah is warning the people. God is warning these people because they're living in this deluded state of hypocrisy. They're saying, I can do whatever I want and then come and, and claim the grace of God. And, you know, James, in the book of James, Catchy original name there. Uh, James, in the book of James, says faith without works is dead. Because if you believe something, you're forced to act on that belief. If you are unwilling to act on that belief, then you really don't believe it. And so, if these people are saying, oh, we're delivered, you know, the grace of God is reaching for us, and then they're trampling on it, they don't understand grace. They don't understand what it means to have faith in the Lord and to then respond to the grace of God. To take the grace of God and then just say, I'm going to walk in sin as much as I can, is to completely misunderstand the grace of God and to see it, not as, to see it as like a get-out-of-jail-free card instead of what it is, which is the gift of fellowship with the Lord. Um, and sort of a similar deal, he goes in chapter 21, He has a a similar encounter with, well, forget that. No, there it is. He has a similar encounter with the king of Judah, Zedekiah. The king has basically the same deal. He brings Jeremiah to him. And in chapter 21, verse 2, he says, Please inquire of the Lord on our behalf, for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is warring against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all of his wonderful acts so that the enemy will withdraw from us. Zedekiah, we're told elsewhere in the scriptures, is a wicked king. He never served the Lord. He never had any interest in getting rid of the idolatry in the nation. He never had any interest in, in doing the things of God. But all of a sudden, oh, Nebuchadnezzar's coming. Well, maybe God just wants to bless us again. Because, you know, we're, we're a Christian nation, right? We're a Jewish nation. So maybe the Lord owes us something. And, and God is warning the people, you can't play religion. You can't play religious games. You either are serving the Lord or you're not. And it's important for us to be aware in our own lives. Are we, you know, why are we doing what we do? Are we playing games? Are we just doing this because it's culturally, you know, in our circle, the best thing to do to make us feel comfortable? Why Why are we doing what we do? And are we being honest with ourselves and, more importantly, with the Lord? Because the Lord understands what we're doing. The Lord understands. He sees our hypocrisy. And if we are doing it willfully, And he says, I really have no room for that. Chapter 17 um, is a just phenomenal passage of Scripture. Chapter 17, verse 5. Again, we're going to be jumping through sort of the warnings, the promises, and the judgments of God. So here's a warning. Chapter 17, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in the stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is Desperately sick. Who can understand it? I the Lord search the heart, I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So our own hearts can't save us. Playing out religion can't save us, our own hearts can't save us. Our own intellect, our ability to judge things based on our feelings, or our you know, our ability to sort of see the situation unfolding before us is a guaranteed way to make a stupid judgment call. Making judgment calls based on our ability to discern is being stupid. And the Lord says, if you do that, you're going to be like a person who's living in the wilderness in like a, a salt desert. Not much grows in a salt desert. But, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord, for he'll be like a tree planted by the water. All right, we live in Indiana, where we have a creek every you know, 100 yards. And so we get to see this play it out in our own lives. You ever seen a good, big, fat tree that's been sitting by the water for a long time? It's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. And that's a metaphor that the Lord's giving us, Say, this is what you're like when your trust is in me. I am, you know, that bed that you can root in that will not give way. And by the way, in case we didn't catch it the first time, he says, the heart is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. Your heart is perverted. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, can understand your heart. So playing at religion can't save us. Our own heart can't save us. Chapter 12, I told you we're jumping back and forth. Chapter 12, we sort of shift gears a little bit And instead of Jeremiah delivering uh, a warning to the people, he's actually just having a little interaction with the Lord here. Uh, And we get to see a great moment of vulnerability in Jeremiah's writing. He says, verse 1, Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. God, you're righteous, but we need to talk about justice here. Why is the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? God, you know... The wicked people are prospering. The treacherous people are like chilling out. Why is that? God, you're righteous, but you're not fair is sort of where Jeremiah's at. He's wrestling with this breakdown between what he believes to be true and what he sees with his eyes. And the Lord answers them in verse 5 and says, if you've run with the footmen and they've tired you out, then how can you compete with the horses? If you fall down in a land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? The Lord does not encourage him right here. The Lord says, Jeremiah, you're running with the guys and you're getting wiped out. Uh, what happens when I stick you in the horse race? You're not, you're, not doing, you're not preparing yourself to run the race that I'm setting before you. And, and there's a point here for us, which is Jeremiah, as he's praying this, he's, he's super aware. Really, verse 1 through 4, he's super aware of what the wicked are up to. And how they're doing it and how they're hanging on and everything's just going great for them. And where's, he, where's his focus? Jeremiah's focus is all of a sudden on the people of the world and how unfair things seem here on earth. And the Lord's point is, you're looking at the wrong race, pal. You are, you're running the wrong race. He says, how are you going to run with the horses if, you, if you're getting exhausted right here with the footmen? And I love sort of as we get to see the major prophets tie together in Isaiah, we get the answer. The Lord's, Isaiah 40, the Lord says those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll rise up on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. So Jeremiah is getting really bogged down because he's getting his eyes off of the Lord. Just like Peter, when he stepped out of the boat, was able to walk on water until it says he saw the waves and then he began to sink. We take our eyes off the Lord, and there's plenty of injustice in this world, don't get me wrong. And there are things that we have a responsibility to stand up for and and to fight against, and, you know, we should truthfully be a wrench in the plans of the enemy. But our focus needs to never be on how bad things are getting, or how corrupt the world system is, or how perverted the whatever is. Our focus needs to be on the Lord. Our focus needs to be on, am I... Waiting on the Lord? Am I letting the Lord renew my strength? Am I fellowshipping with the Lord? Because we're created to be used by the Lord. Yes, absolutely. The Lord wants to use us. And the Lord wants to use us to be a part of His plan for the world. But more significantly, we're created to know the Lord. We're created to have fellowship with God. That's really the point of Christianity, is that Jesus Christ came so that we could have fellowship. He didn't come to transform us so that we could fix the world. Because that's he wants to use us, but that's the Holy Spirit's job. The Lord came so that we could have fellowship with the Lord. And so if we are taking our eyes off of the Lord and onto the problems of the world, then what's going to happen is we're going to start getting tired. We're going to start getting worn out. We're going to start getting just wiped because we have got to orient our perspective on the things that matter. So it's a promise from God, but it's also a warning from God, right? That, hey, hey, Jeremiah, keep your eyes on me. Keep, keep the focus um, chapter 23, and Jeremiah really, he just, he jumps, uh, he does jump around a lot chronologically. He jumps, you know, you got to read, it'll say like in the year of this king and the year this king, and you realize they're back and forth, but he also jumps a lot with just where he's at. He's, there's not like a chunk of warnings and a chunk of promises and a chunk of judgments. There's just, they're all intermingled So we get to just go through them all and sort of see <clears throat> Over the course of his ministry, how the Lord was speaking through him in different times, and different ways to, to different people in the nation. But chapter 23 um, is, is, just a, is a fantastic passage. He's starting in verse 1. He says, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. And so he's he specifically referring, he's indicting the priests who were ripping off the people and misleading them. Verse 2, therefore thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend them and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will be nor will any be missing." The Lord is dealing with the people who are leading his children astray. And the Lord always takes that very seriously. Anybody in a, in a teaching role, anybody with uh, the ability to speak into somebody else's life, the Lord takes that seriously. But um, it's a great, if you're ever trying to remember it, in chapter 23 of Jeremiah, the Lord makes a promise to fulfill Psalm 23. Because in Psalm 23, David says, "'The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And the Lord here says, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and bring them back to their pasture. And they'll be fruitful and multiply. I will raise up shepherds over them and they will tend them. And they'll not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing. And in Psalms, uh, David says, uh, "You know, even though I walk through the valley in the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. And the Lord's saying here, I am still going to take care of my people. I'm going to sustain them. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to deliver them. And then over in the New Testament in John 10, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. So this is a a prophecy. The Lord says, I'm going to gather the people back. I'm going to send a shepherd. And Jesus says, I'm the shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one who lays down his life for the sheep. I'm the one who's going to sustain the sheep. I'm the one who's going to... I'm the door. I'm, I'm their protection from the world. And, and Jesus... So it, it's a great prophecy about just Jesus' coming and his fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. In chapter 31, we get really a very similar promise. Um, starting in verse 31. So thirty-one, thirty-one. He says, Behold... And days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The Lord says, I'm going to make a new covenant. And that word covenant could also be translated testament. So in a sense, he's saying, I'm going to make a new testament. Not like the Old Testament, which you guys broke, but a New Testament. And so he's, he's very careful to point out, and we need to understand this. He says, you know, the problem with the Old Testament is not that it was faulty. It's that you guys are wicked and lame. Uh, the problem with the Old Testament law is not that it was imperfect. It wasn't that it was incomplete. It was that human beings are too sinful to keep it. And so the Lord says, All right, I'm going to give you a new testament, a new covenant. Instead of giving you the law, and if you keep this, you can be holy— which is a perfect, it's a perfect law and it totally works, except for the fact that we're just so messed up. And so he says, instead of that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a New Testament. <clears throat> I'm going to put my law within you and on your heart, I will write it and I'll be your God and you'll be my people. So we don't live under the Old Testament law as Christians. Why? Because God gave us a New Testament where he has written his law on our hearts. We don't have to act out the law. We have been transformed from the inside out by the law of God. Jesus, on the night of the Last Supper, he said, a new commandment I'm giving to you, love one another as I have loved you. And that sums up basically the entirety of the Old Testament. He said, this is a new commandment. Basically, everything else bottles next right here. Here's what you do. You love each other the way I loved you. That's you know, sort of the summary of how we live out Christianity. But the Lord's saying, I'm going to write my law on your hearts. I'm going to send you a New Testament, a new covenant. And that's what we're under. That's what we get to be under right now. That's what we get to live in. We get to have the law of God on our hearts. And he says, where he says, they won't teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, no, the Lord. He's not saying that we don't still need to learn from each other and that we don't need to, uh, you know, be growing under other people's uh, wisdom. But he's saying, the hierarchy of the priesthood is gone, okay? In the Old Testament, in the Levitical priesthood, the only way you could approach God was if a priest entered the middle ground between you and God. You were too sinful to approach God. God was too holy to let you near him. And so there had to be a priest and a sacrifice in the middle to sort of, to bridge that gap. And so to know God, you had to, there was a process where basically the priest had to tell you, Here's how you know God. And God said, I'm going to do away with that. And he did. Hebrews tells us all about how Jesus became the ultimate high priest, the final high priest who is our mediator. Through Jesus, we are completely connected to. We have complete and full access to God, to the presence of God at any point in time. And so we don't have to have this hierarchy of human beings and these layers that we work up through to get to God. We don't need... You know, whatever your denominational background. We don't need cardinals or bishops or deacons or whatever else. We have authority structures in place to help with, you know, practical logistics, but there's no person who you have to go through to have a relationship with the Lord. The law of God is written on your heart, and so you have fellowship with the Lord all the time. The only time you don't have fellowship with the Lord is when you choose not to, but you have full access to the presence of God at all time. So it's just an an incredible promise. He says, I'm going to forgive their iniquity and their sin I'll remember no more. We are completely cleansed. Jesus' death paid the full sacrifice. So instead of, like in the Levitical priesthood, where every time you sinned, you'd have to bring another sacrifice, which, truthfully, that point means after a while you just get good at not counting very well, right? If I had to bring a sacrifice every time I sinned, <clears throat> I'd hate to guess what the count would be, right? I mean, that's just you, you, you can't do it. We're too sinful, and the Lord says, "No, no, I'm going to remember their sin no more. I'm going to forgive their iniquity." Why? Because He paid for it all sufficiently, and so we have full access because of the sufficiency of Christ. Now, and that that drives our response. That is why Jeremiah is laying into these people about. You can't play religion with God. You can't trust in your own heart because this is the depth of relationship that we're talking about. This is the level of holiness that we're talking about and then we have to take it seriously. There's incredible, you know, joy and liberty and just fun in that. But it's, it's an incredible privilege, but it is simultaneously an incredible responsibility and we have an obligation to live with both sides of that coin, right? We've got to take it seriously and take it joyfully as far in both directions as we can. And then just sort of, uh, you know, so then chapters 32 to 45 of Jeremiah really are a big chunk of historical narrative to give us kind of the finale of when the nation of Judah fell to the Babylonians. And then there's some more prophecy, and then there's sort of a final recap in chapter 52. But... Um, but Jeremiah, just a couple, before we leave the book, um, I think it's helpful for us to just pause, <coughs> sorry, for us to pause and just look at a couple more of these promises from the Lord. Um, because, you know, we read the Old Testament, and if we're not careful, we can live with this like, oh, there's the, you know, the God of the Old Testament and there's the God of the New Testament. And the God of the Old Testament is this old guy. He's always old for some reason. Um, this old guy who's always in a bad mood, and the God of the New Testament is just this fun, loving, gracious, gentle guy who, uh, as Gail Irwin says, walked around holding sheep and looking sad all the time. Um, so, but it's we—it's totally not true. If we read the scriptures in their context and their entirety, we see that we have—we serve one God, and all the goodness of God is present. In the Old Testament, all the holiness and the judgment of God is present in the New Testament. We can't separate God into these factions that we like or don't like. We, we either accept God for who he reveals himself to be, or we don't. But along the way, as we're looking at the Old Testament, sometimes it's helpful to bring to mind some of those promises of God and see how they really can still apply to our lives. So just briefly, Jeremiah 33, verse 3. The Lord says, Call to me, and I will answer you, and I'll tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. So there's things you want to know and you don't know. What do you do? Call to the Lord. If you're coming to the scriptures to read them, because Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings are a great supplement, they're not a great replacement. If you're coming to the scripture to read it and you're like, God, I don't know what passage, I don't know what I'm going to get out of this. I read this and I'm not really, you know, I'm not getting any great vibes out of this or whatever. Call to the Lord and he will answer you. And he'll show you things you don't know. He will reveal his heart to you. Chapter 33, verse 20. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so the day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levitical priest, my my ministers. So um, God says, all right, as soon as you guys can stop the sun from coming up, then you'll know that everything I ever promised you failed. Once you can you know, flip the orbit of the earth or change that or you know, blow up the sun with a nuclear bomb or whatever, which you can't do, uh, then you'll know that I failed. I was wrong all the way, and it's all just a delusion. What's the point? The point is we can't, and so therefore we can trust that the word of the Lord stands forever. And then just lastly, uh, last promise from Jeremiah for the night, Jeremiah 29 if you're waiting for me to say 11, I'm going to start in 10, because you have to read Jeremiah twenty nine eleven in its context. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with your whole heart. We love that little promise in the middle that says, uh, I know the plans I have for you and their are plans for good. But we've got to remember the context, which is these people are getting ready to go into captivity for 70 years. For seven decades, these people are going to be in a place that's not their homeland. And the Lord says, hey, I've got a plan for you. It, involves, it actually involves you receiving my punishment for your disobedience for seven decades. But don't worry. I want to fulfill my word. And when you pray to me, I will still hear you. And so... It's the promises of God, but they're in context. God is not promising an easy life. He's not promising a fun life. God is promising a life that is full of fellowship with him, that is full of the power of the Holy Spirit, that's full of the word of the Lord, and that can be full of incredible fruitfulness, even if it doesn't feel like there's all these results that we can see. So that's really the book of Jeremiah. It's the story of a faithful man who perseveres, and has a relationship with the Lord on a personal level in the midst of a nation that is completely opposed to serving the Lord. And so every single one of us can be a Jeremiah. Every single one of us has the word of the Lord. Every single one of us has access to the power of the Holy Spirit. We all can walk in the same kind of faithfulness that Jeremiah walked in. But before we wrap up for the night, we're going to cover Lamentations. Lamentations, uh, is, it's not signed, it doesn't say it's written by Jeremiah, but as far back as we have Jewish writings, they've always said it's written by Jeremiah, and there's no reason to doubt that, so we'll say that Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. Um, It's really uh, a book of grief over the judgment of God, and I think it's important to keep that in mind, because Jeremiah spent 40 years being blown off, being burned, being rejected by these people, and he still wept over them. He still wept over the fact that the judgment of God came, and it had to come. It was totally deserved, but he still wept for them. He's still heartbroken over them, and I think it's important for us as we, you know, we we live in a cause and effect world, and sometimes we get to watch people make stupid decisions for a really long time, and sooner or later those catch up to them, and they reap the rewards of that, and anybody can sit back and say, I saw that coming, right? I mean, that's not hard to do. But it takes the the love of God working in our hearts to say, oh, God, have mercy on them. To weep over somebody reaping consequences for their sin. That is the mark of a transformed life. And so that's really what the book of Lamentations is. The book of Lamentations is, uh, we can't appreciate it fully in English because in Hebrew, it's a very tightly structured poem. Uh, It's an acrostic where like, you know, the first three lines all start with, the Hebrew equivalent of RA, and then equivalent of RB, and it goes down through the list, it gets to like RZ, and it's that way for most of the chapters, and it does this whole back-and-forth weave thing. Um, Interestingly, it's a very similar style to Psalm 119, so some people think that Jeremiah may have written Psalm 119 as well. But um, we just sort of briefly, it's Hebrew poetry, and in Hebrew poetry is... Not like, we cover this in Song of Solomon. It's not like American poetry, right? American poetry, you have usually four lines, and either the first and third line rhyme, and second and fourth line rhyme, or the first and second and the third and fourth line rhyme. And Hebrew poetry uh, rhyme has nothing to do with it. Um, basically, it's a symmetry of thought. And And I'll just preface this by saying, I'm researching this kind of stuff right now, and I'm like, starting to grasp it. So if I say anything that you think is historically inaccurate, you're probably correct. But, but basically, in a nutshell, Hebrew poetry centers in on a main theme. And so basically you'll have a thought, we'll say, let's say you are going to have a positive and negative thoughts, like, you know, something good versus something bad happening. A negative, a negative, a positive, a negative, and a negative. So it's like, it's almost like lines one and five match up, lines two and four match up, and line three matches up. And you say, why on earth does that matter? It matters because Lamentations is five chapters. And so for us to sort of understand it in context, what we're going to do is actually kind of jump it like that. So uh, we're going to end tonight in chapter three. And it's not because I felt like chapter three was more fun to read last, it's because that's actually in Hebrew where the point of emphasis would be. So chapter one, Um, we're just going to sort of read through all these different judgments that Jeremiah is weeping over. He says, Judah has gone into exile under affliction, verse 3, and under harsh servitude. She dwells among the nations, but she has found no rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of distress. The roads of Zion are in mourning because no one comes to the appointed feast. All her gates are desolate. Her priests are groaning. Her virgins are afflicted. She herself is bitter. Her adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies prosper." For the Lord has caused her grief, because of the multitude of her transgressions, her little ones have gone away as captives before the adversary. Jeremiah is just, he's, just looking around him at a city that's been destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. Chapter four uh, is a little bit more the same, starting in verse eight. Their appearance, he's describing the people left over from the siege, is blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It is withered, it has become like wood. Better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger, for they pine away, being stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of the compassionate women boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord has accomplished his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger, and he has kindled a fire in Zion. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the inhabitants of the world, that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem because of the sins of her prophets, and the iniquities of her priests, who have shed in her midst the blood of the righteous. Jeremiah, and remember too, Jeremiah started his ministry during the reign of Josiah, who was the last good king. Jeremiah got to be part of a revival, and surely there's that hope, like maybe this is going to stick. And then he proceeded for the rest of his ministry to watch a long, slow, actually a long, fast downward spiral. He spent, he had seen The grace of God poured out at the beginning, and then he watched people just turn their backs on it for decades. And now he is watching them reap the rewards. He's watching them starve to death. People that he knew. He says you can't even recognize them. Chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Slaves rule over us. There's no one to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin has become as hot as an oven because of the burning heat of famine. And so he's saying, you know, like we're not slaves. We're slaves slaves at this point. We have fall into like the bottom point of the social ladder. This is as far as we can go. Now, that's the book of Lamentations, but again, remember, because it's Hebrew poetry, the central portion is the point of emphasis. So for us, since we're Westerners, we like to stick it at the end. So we stuck it at the end tonight. Um, so, So we bear these things in mind, right? He's watching people starve to death. He's watching cannibalism take place. He's watching his friends sold into slavery. And then chapter 3, verse 21. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, if you remember, uh, three weeks ago, we were going through Psalms. And we read Psalm 136, and everybody stood up, and we all read, you know, His mercy endures forever. And we read the list of, of times and ways in which the mercy of God endures forever. And, you know, He created us. He brought the Israelites out of Egypt. He, you know, delivered them from their adversaries. He brought them into the promised land. He conquered their enemies, and His mercy endures forever. And we sort of finished it up with a hoorah. And then Jeremiah's here, and he says, The Lord's mercy never ceases, and His compassions never fail. And this is in the midst of the destruction of Jerusalem. And so it's you know, it's easy to say, oh yeah, you know, you're on a spiritual mountaintop. Does the Lord's mercy do it forever? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, totally, absolutely. Right? You you know, you whatever, you have something great, you get a raise, or you move to a new place, or you get married, or whatever, for the first week, anyways. Uh, whatever fun stuff is happening, and you know, is the mercy of the Lord doing forever? Oh, yes, God is so good. Uh, but what about when you're in a, in a siege and you're watching your friends die, right? Because they refuse to listen to the word of God. You're watching people reap consequences for 40 years. And probably the only reason it ends there is because you probably wound up getting killed uh, when the people basically grabbed him and took him to Egypt in complete defiance of everything that the Lord had said at the very end. So in that point, in that state, Jeremiah says... I'm going to call this to mind, and because of this, I have hope that the Lord's mercy never fails. His, his mercy never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. Jeremiah is He's living in some of the most destitute conditions that you can imagine, he says, the Lord is my portion. We're all starving to death. What are you having today? I'm having the Lord. I'm I'm satisfying myself in the Lord. I'm waiting on the Lord. I'm experiencing the mercy of God actively in my life in the midst of incredible opposition and incredible hardship because the mercy of the Lord endures forever. And that's really, I think that's just a great way... For us to just end this, you know, remembering the faithfulness of Jeremiah, right? But the faithfulness of Jeremiah only is even remotely possible because of the faithfulness of the Lord and the mercy of the Lord because that is new every morning because his compassions fail not. That is what enabled Jeremiah and that's what enables us to live lives of faithfulness regardless of the circumstances or the nation that we find ourselves in. So that's the story of Jeremiah. Next week we're going to get to Ezekiel, um, which is exciting stuff. It's going to be a lot of fun. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would impact our hearts and transform our lives. We, We thank you for the example of someone like Jeremiah who served you so faithfully. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit and by the power of your word that you would accomplish that same work in us, that you would make us faithful men and women. We thank you, just as we're wrapping up, that you uh, are a God whose loving kindness never ceases. Your compassions never fail. They're new every morning. We thank you for that, Lord. We need them so desperately every morning. So we pray that you'd be with us. Go go before us. Go with us. Guide us and lead us. All for your name and your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.